I'm going to begin by just um, putting up a scripture on the screen. It's 2 Timothy 4. I know you've seen uh, this passage before. But it says this. It says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. I know, I know you know that verse, but this is a message from Paul to a young pastor, Timothy. And what this verse does is sets the biblical pattern for pastoral ministry. It is my job to teach sound doctrine. And uh, I know that that's why a lot of you come, because we teach the Bible, and that's a good thing. You need sound doctrine. It's uh, of utmost importance. But knowledge is not enough. It doesn't end there. It's equally important that we apply the doctrine to our lives. So it's equally my job to exhort you to right living and also to rebuke you when that isn't happening. So in short, I would say my job is to teach sound doctrine and exhort you to right living. Then what is your job as Christians? It is to know sound doctrine and pursue right living. Does that make sense? And this is the model that's set out in Scripture. Doctrinal teaching without exhortation to right living is actually unbiblical. It's the pattern of Scripture. You think about one of the greatest doctrinal letters in the Bible, the book of Romans by Paul. It's just chapter of chapter of rich, dripping doctrine, right? And you get to chapter 12. So you have 11 chapters of doctrine. And in chapter 12, this is what he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I, I, I urge you, he says, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable, he says, based upon everything you've learned, everything I've written in 11 chapters, to offer your entire selves to God in holy living. He said, that's reasonable. And the writer of Hebrews refers to the whole letter of Hebrews as a letter of exhortation, uh, uh, encouraging people to use their doctrine, take that doctrine, and now go and live rightly. Um, and it has been full of doctrine as well. But the five warnings of Hebrews, and I recapped those last week, offer us much of the exhortation of the letter. And chapter 12 is one long lead up to the final warning of, of Hebrews. And so it's full, it's full of exhortation to right living. It's just been wonderful. And the author, if you're new with us joining us today, the author's been using the imagery of running a race sort of as a metaphor for the Christian life of faith, as, as a race that we're running. And, and so here at this point, in effect, what he, what he has said is this. In chapter 11, he says, all right, I'm going to explain faith to you. This is what faith is. I'm going to define faith. I'm going to give you examples of faith from the Old uh, Testament. And I've illustrated it now. So I've explained it. I've defined it. I've given the examples. I've illustrated. Now go live it. It makes sense? Now you go run the race. You have the knowledge, go live it. But he also acknowledges that running this race of faith, living the Christian life is, is difficult. It's wearying. It's discouraging often. And running this race of faith is difficult because we live in a sinful and hostile world. And so it calls for endurance. And remember the end of, of uh, verse 1, the beginning of verse 2 of, of chapter 12 there. Let us run with endurance, he said. Let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us, looking unto Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And then we're exhorted to consider him. Look at Jesus. Consider him who endured the hostility. He, he showed endurance. And then verses 4 to 11, that's what we looked at last week, um, are, are written as the theological reasons for endurance. All the difficulties that we experience in our life, all the hardships, Physical, mental, spiritual, all of those things are part of the discipline of God. And remember, we define that. That's the total instruction of God. That means God uses all of the circumstances in our life, good and bad, to, to train us, to correct us, to cultivate us, to educate us, to push us toward maturity. 
That is what he's doing. It's Christian discipline that regulates character. Now, that's the theological side. Consider the difficulties. Consider those things to be a part of what is shaping into, uh, you into what God wants you to be. That's, that's that side. But today, today we get to look at the more practical side. With all that theological understanding, we're now exhorted to go. Go run the race. And so here we are exhorted to carry out specific duties while running that race. And much of this is not concerned with, with us in particular as, as so much as it is with the race affecting others. Our race, the way we run our race of faith or live our Christian life, has a great effect on others. And so this is the duties of the runner, kind of going back to that racing theme. The duties of the runner. And we look at verses 12 to 17 today. So let me read the passage And then we'll ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. Verse 12, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. We pray. God, thank you for your word to us today. And Lord, we As we prepare our hearts and minds to study this passage, we pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would illuminate the rich, wonderful, and deep truths that are here, Lord, that we would open, um, have open minds and hearts to apply these truths to our lives, Lord, that we would, in effect, take these things and go and run the race that you've called us to, to run. Lord, knowing that you are with us, knowing that you strengthen us, and that you use all of these things, good and bad, to... Uh, shape us and mold us, Lord. I pray that you'd just be honored as we study your word and that your people would be edified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously, we have already received some uh, exhortation regarding running our race because we were told at the beginning of the chapter that there are some things, when you begin running the race, some things you can't take into the race. Uh, he said, you need to lay aside the things that weigh you down. Remember that? Things that encumber you. There are things we drag along through our life that we don't need to. It's unnecessary weight. It's extra baggage. He says, you need to put those things aside. You wouldn't take those things with you in a, run, uh, in a real race. Don't bring them into your race of faith. Also, he says, lay aside the sin that entangles us, right? The sin actually stops us from running. That's exhortation. But here, these exhortations are specifically related to helping others run the race and finish it. It's very, very important. And so let's look at these duties. And the the first duty that comes to us is strengthen up. And this is in verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. The first duty of a runner is, And when I say runner throughout this, I'm meaning a Christian living the Christian life of faith. The first duty is to look outside themselves and to look for who might need to be strengthened up. This word strengthen is anorthao, and it has a a, a variety of meanings. Lift up, okay, lift up, rebuild, but even an element of making straight. It's used three times in the New Testament, and one of them is about a woman who had an infirmity of 18 years. Do you remember she was bent over for 18 years? Could you imagine 18 years not being able to stand up straight, and Jesus healed her and made her stand up straight. He rebuilt her. He he lifted her up, in essence. That's the word that's used here. It's rendered strengthen here in our verse. 
And the reason he uses strengthen here is because the author is actually drawing from an Old Testament passage. It's very, very similar. It's Isaiah 35. Now, keep your hands in Hebrews 12 because we're obviously studying this. We'll come back to this. But I, I want you to see the passage in Isaiah 35. You'll turn there briefly. And as you're turning there, I'll sort of recap what's happening in Isaiah's time. Remember, Isaiah is a prophet of Israel. And at this time, in point in history, Israel is a discouraged bunch. They're like the Hebrews here that, that the author of Hebrews is writing, right? They're really discouraged. They're weary. They want to give up. They want to throw in the towel. Think about all that they've had. They've had uh, wicked kings. They've had false prophets. They've had people among themselves who are, are not following after God, so fellow Israelites who are disobedient. And to top it all off, they've had powerful enemies, one of which is the mighty kingdom of Assyria knocking on their door. I mean, they're just, they're just done. And so Isaiah is writing this to remind them that this isn't the kingdom. Can I remind you, this isn't the kingdom? This isn't the kingdom, he says, because there's a kingdom coming, and he says the glory of Lebanon will return. He says the desert is going to rejoice. The desert rose is going to blossom. He's given them all this rich imagery, and he says, and in that day, they're going to see the glory of the Lord. He's pointing them to the future, right? Encouraging them to look beyond that. But then he does something interesting. Then he says, now, I want you to counsel one another. I want you to counsel one another. It's one thing for the pastor to stand up and say, here's what it is. Let me point you to this. But then he says, now you, you counsel each other. That's what's happening here in Isaiah 35. Look at verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Does that sound familiar? Very much like what we just read. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God, and he will come and save you. You see, the point of Hebrews, our Hebrews passage, uh, which you can go back to now, is the same as that of Isaiah 35. It's to encourage those that are exhausted. They're just done. They're getting discouraged. And can I tell you, I have run a long-distance race. If you've ever run a long-distance race and you're running, the first things to go, they're not your legs. The first things to go are your arms. Your arms are working. I mean, have, some people are like, I've never run. I don't know. Your arms are actually doing this when you run. You know what? Because they help propel you along. They help to keep you going forward. And so this movement is exhausting. And, you, you know, after a long time, they, these are the first things to start to go because they're weaker muscles than the muscles of your legs. And so these began to, 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 to hang down. And, and people who know that and are coaching from the sidelines will yell out to them like, get your arms up. And you're like, oh, sorry, get my arms up. Because they're so important to keep you going. But as soon as those go, you know what else goes after that? Then the knees, right? Then the legs and the knees go. So what he's saying here, he's like, that's what you need to look for. Look for those whose arms are starting to hang down. But look, at he doesn't say strengthen your hands, strengthen your feeble knees. He says strengthen the hands and the feeble knees. Meaning they can't, they could, they could be anyone's hands anyone's knees in the congregation. We're not to concentrate on our own weaknesses. Rather, we should be looking to, to whom else we can encourage. And you know what's funny? When you begin to do that, your own problems seem to kind of dwindle away when you begin to focus on who else needs encouragement because there's always someone worse off than you are. They, these people really need encouraging. And remember Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25? He wrote this, that we should not be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another... And so much more as you see the day approaching. He says exhorting one another. That's the counseling of one another. The exhortation he's giving there is the exhortation for you to give to each other. That's why in-person fellowship, coming together in person and not just on Zoom or you know, live stream is so important. Christian fellowship is important because it maintains the health of the body. Remember chapters, uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians? I love that because Paul starts to... Uh, talk about members of the church body as members of a human body. Some are an eye and some are a hand. He says, if the whole body were an eye, who would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, then who would do the, the smelling? You see, each part is so important. And the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. He writes that because the purpose of the diversity of the members is that proper care can take place in the church. A hand can properly provide for the eye. An eye can see what the feet need, etc. 
Much of Hebrews has been about helping each other. Have you noticed that? I mean, obviously, I just read Hebrews 10, but think way back to Hebrews 3, 13. It says this, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And the exhorting there is to keep going, you know, go into all the way to entering God's rest while it's today, because soon it will be tomorrow and tomorrow's too late. Hebrews 4.11 was another one. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, that of, that of sin, hardening their heart. And so we're to look out for one another here. The job of the church, your job is to be strengtheners. You need to strengthen up those who are weak. The hands which hang down, the feeble knees. Now, how do we, how do we strengthen them? When, when hangs hand down, when knees get feeble, those are signs of weakening faith. It's just when, like, I, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. I don't know if I could go on. I just don't want to. And we need to come alongside them and strengthen their faith. How do we do that? How do you encourage someone in their faith? You do it like Isaiah did. You remind them that this is not your home. I, I would be discouraged too. If this is all I saw, this is my future, this world, you can have it. It stinks, but I am not a citizen of this world. There's a future hope of glory. You remind them of those. You remind them of God's promises to his children, and you encourage them to run the race, not looking at the hostility of the world, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. Look for those who are weak because your job, your job, church, is to be strengtheners, strengthen up people. But also, there's a second duty of the runner, and that is to straighten out Look at verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. A straight is orthos, obviously where we get orthopedics from, but the word specifically refers to opposite of crooked, something that has been straightened that was previously crooked. We need to make straight paths, it says, for your feet. It doesn't say for the feet of others, right? Previously, it wasn't necessarily our hands and our knees that needed um, strengthening. But here he most definitely says, straighten the paths for your feet. You need to make sure that your own path is straight. Why? Because you cannot straighten the path of another. And people try. You can't do it. It's their path. They're choosing that. Does that make sense? What you need to focus on, am I walking the right way? Am I running the race that God has called me to run here? That's the emphasis. I mean, keeping in that, that racing metaphor, it's keeping in your lane. If you've ever run that kind of a track and field event with the lanes, you know, if you go out of your lane, it's bad for two reasons. One, you're disqualified as a runner. But two, you hinder the other runners. It's, it's staying in your lane. Biblically and spiritually speaking, it speaks about staying on the righteous path. Wise King Solomon was speaking to his son. In Proverbs 4, 25 to 27, this is what he said. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. Do you see that? So, so important. You've got to be looking straight ahead, right before you. Keep your path established. It's your path that you've got to make sure you're running the right way. And I think, honestly, the author is likely still thinking about Isaiah 35 and keeping that in mind here. And the, and the reason I believe that is because the reason he gives for that. Why do you need to keep in that lane and keep it a straight path? Look what it says. So that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Now, this is really kind of interesting. There's a bit of creative double meaning happening here. Lame does mean lame. It means crippled, like we see in, in the New Testament with the lame being healed by Jesus and others. That has the same meaning here. But the word dislocated has a double meaning. Let me show you the word. is at ektrepo. That's the word. And it means to turn or twist out. So that's the medical sense being dislocated. But it also means to turn off or aside. Now, it's only used in a medical sense in Greek literature, not in Scripture. It is used as turning aside all of the other times. Five times in the New Testament, once here in Hebrews, all of the rest 
in First and Second Timothy. Now, I want you to see how it's used there because it helps us to understand how it's used in Hebrews. Paul is addressing Timothy. He had him stay in Ephesus because he was telling them to, to, to command people to teach no other doctrine but the doctrine of Christ, okay? And in 1 Timothy 1.6, this is what he tells Timothy, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Do you see that? There's the turning aside. They're, they're going to other things that aren't the doctrines of Christ. Turning aside. He gives Timothy instructions concerning young widows because young widows were getting into trouble. They're going from house to house, being busybodies, getting involved in gossip. And he says, Timothy, I want you to encourage them to just go get married. Have them remarry is what he writes to them. Why? This is what he says in 1 Timothy 5, 15. For some have already turned aside after Satan. (sighs) Wow, right? Because they're just getting involved in worldly things. They've turned aside from what their true purpose is. And of course, you're all familiar with Paul's prophecy to Timothy because it describes the days we're living in. And it's 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4. For the time will come, and I think is here, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. For one to turn aside is to fall away, and that's been used here in Hebrews. You remember what it means? To be an apostate. Apostasy is one who has begun on the path of faith, but turns aside from it. Now, what's the point of all this? The righteous are to make straight paths, righteous paths. You, church, you're to make righteous paths for others to follow. Why? So that the lame will not be turned aside from the faith, be dislocated. Do you see what he's done there? You know, we can do some serious damage to others when we are not keeping on a righteous path. You think about how much damage has been done to those who want to know about the Christian faith, who maybe were interested in it, and they looked at other Christians who blew it because we haven't been faithful to run the race that God has called us to live. Isaiah speaks of it the same way. He calls that the highway of holiness. In the same passage we just looked at, it's Isaiah 35, but it's verse 8. I'll put it on the screen for you so you don't have to turn back there. He says this, it's a highway, a highway shall be there and a road, and it should be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Even someone who's ignorant, if they go on that path and they're following the right people, they're not going to go astray. Don't you love that? When we make straight paths for our feet, it's, it's benefit not only for us, but for others. Other people are watching. It's for the weak and for the lame. In fact, the imagery of Isaiah 35 continues on because he says the lame will, will leap like a deer. Here in our passage, it says those who are spiritually lame, they were going to find healing. Healing. Peter uses the same Greek word for healing there in reference to spiritual healing. That's the kind of healing. We're talking about spiritual wellness here. In 1 Peter 2, 24, he writes this, speaking of Jesus who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. You see, you were healed. There's healing that came to you and to I because of what Christ did on that cross of Calvary. We sang about it. We called it the old rugged cross. So the lame, those that are weak, if they're following the right people on the right path, they won't be turned aside, but they're going to find spiritual healing. Do you see how important this is? It's a great benefit for others. It's not just for the weak. It's not just for the lame Christians, though, but it's also for those who have identified themselves with the church. You know, the author of Hebrews has talked about that quite a bit. There's people in the church everywhere, all over the planet, that have always identified themselves with the church or maybe have always sort of considered themselves Christians, but they've never experienced God's grace for themselves. This is what he's saying. This is why you need to run this race. Your example, your straight path of righteousness can either cause someone to fall away or, or bring them to healing. So we strengthen the weak and feeble, and we're to straighten out our path to bring others to salvation. Two very important duties, aren't they? There's a third. It is this. It is seek after. And we find it in verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, this word pursue 
is diako, and it means to seek after eagerly, uh, to earnestly endeavor or to acquire. That's why I've used the seek out uh, word here. We're to, to, to seek or after, sorry, to seek after. The word is an aggressive word. It's used in the same sense of chasing after uh, something. What are we to chase after here? Peace with all people, which brings up a good question, doesn't it? Can Christians have peace with all people? Hmm. Let me give the quick and easy answer. No, it's never going to happen. Why? It's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. Jesus was a man of peace, but he died at the hands of people who were not peaceful who are not seeking peace. Ukraine and Russia are at war because one or the other of them does not want peace. It's a two-way street. We're not called to be at peace with everyone, yet Scripture repeatedly tells us to pursue peace, to seek after it. Ephesians 4, 3, speaking of the church, it says we should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is obviously speaking to the church because it's the Spirit of Christ there. The unity of the Spirit, that's referenced that's our, our job, to keep the peace in the church, to maintain that unity. In Romans 14, 19, he also speaks to the church, therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which, uh, by which one may edify another. So we want to build people up. That's what edify means. You can't do that when you're not peace with people. So we're to pursue peace within the church. We have to pursue it. But what about outside the church? Are we to pursue peace with people outside the church? Yes, we are. In Romans 12, 18, it says this, If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Yeah, we're told to endeavor and to keep peace and pursue peace, but we don't have any control over the other party, do we? It's as much as depends upon you, if possible. Meaning, we need to do everything in our power to be at peace with all men. Now, that does not mean compromise the truth. That's not that, what that means. But we seek peace. Now, how does this fit into all this? Why is this so important? There's another scripture, I think, that will help us see what the point here is in our passage. It's Psalm 34, 14. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So think about Hebrews, the writer just exhorted us to make our paths straight, didn't he? Which is departing from evil, right? We depart from evil. We're on the straight path, the righteous path, uh, God-honoring life. We're trying to live the life of faith. And, and we walk on that, and now we seek peace and pursue it. Now, we're told on that path of faith that we're justified by faith. As justified, meaning no longer sinners, you have something that others don't have. It's called peace with God. Because the truth is, sinners are not at peace with God because His wrath is coming upon all mankind because we have all offended a holy and righteous God. We sang about His holiness, and there's not a person in this room that is holy. So we sang about His holiness. We know He's holy. He's going to judge sin. But people who have been justified, declared righteous in the, the, the heavenly divine courtroom of God, now have peace with God. And Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And that's come about how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the, the peace comes. So believers, you know, we know peace. In fact, we know the best peace of all. Peace with God of the universe. So now we're his children as a result. Children of God are by nature then peacemakers. Do you remember Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 9, he said this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay? So because you are a peacemaker and you know peace, you're a child of God. That's part of our testimony, is that we know the peace of God, and so we should do everything to live at peace with others. Now, that, in short, is how we love people. Right? Loving people is part of what we're here for. We've got to pursue peace, but we're also to pursue something else, our passage says, and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, this is a confusing verse. When you look at this on the offset, it kind of looks like you can earn salvation. It looks like salvation by works. If you just pursue peace and you pursue holiness, you know, you'll eventually get it. That's not what this is saying at all, because just as there's, there's no peace for the wicked, Scripture says, there's no holiness for the wicked either. Real peace and real holiness only comes through Christ. That's who it comes through. 
So positionally, right, positionally then, Christians are already at peace and they're already holy or you could say righteous, okay? That's your position before God, your righteous standing before him. But practically, we all got a long way to go. Some of you got like really far to go. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but we, we have to pursue peace. We got to make every effort, but we also have to pursue holiness. Now, how could I break this down? For the believer, we have two commands, all right? And they break down to loving God and loving people. It's our church motto. It's on your t-shirts. If anyone wore one today, just look at the back, right? But on that shirt, we quote Mark 12, 31. Let me show you those two verses, Mark 12, 30 and 31. All right, Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Forget all the rest. Love God, love people. That's what he says. So when you're pursuing peace, that's how you love people. When you're pursuing holiness, that's how you love God. You see it? They're both there. So we're here exhorted to seek after peace, to seek after obedience to the two great commands of our Lord, holiness. We must endeavor to live pure, obedient lives because it testifies of our position spiritually. You are telling people, Christ looks upon me different. I am not different, but he looks upon me different. Now, I want to live as a believer, practically in a way that matches my position. If Christ looks at me as holy and righteous because he's forgiven me all my trespasses and sins, and I now have the righteousness of Christ, why won't I live that way? Live in a way that matches how Christ looks upon me. That's what he's saying. It's got to match. Your pure life gives evidence to God's righteousness, but also his righteous standards. It is communicating things to people without holiness no one will see the Lord. People say, well, why are you doing that? Why are you foregoing all this great fun and pleasure you could be having? Why are you walking this path? God has made me righteous. I am not, but I want to live as righteous as I can. And you're declaring something to them because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without righteousness, no one will see the Lord. And that was also preached by Jesus. Matthew 5, 8, he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's not your outward, it's the heart, and he's the one that changes that. Your straight path doesn't make you holy. It simply testifies to the holiness already granted to you through faith in Jesus Christ. You can have all the peace with men that is possible in this world and then go live a debauched life, and neither them nor you will know the peace of God. But our efforts to have peace um, with all while we live pure, obedient Lives can lead them to God who can make them righteous and give them peace. It's worth it. So seek after peace. Seek after holiness while we run this race. And there's one more duty of the Christian. It is this, of the runner. See two. See two. Now, verse 15 says this. Looking carefully. This is where we get see two from. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now, let's break it down. Just look at that first part. He says, looking carefully, uh, episcopeo, okay? And that means to look upon or to inspect or to oversee or uh, to look after. It's actually closely related to episcopos, which is where we get overseer or bishop, someone who oversees uh, the, the church. But most of translations, and maybe you're holding one today, um, render this C2, See to anyone, right? That's what it says. So we're going with see to today for my outline because it falls in with the S's that I'm using. All right, but we're to act as overseers for one another. We're to be looking out for one another or seeing to one another. Now, what are we looking out for? Now, there's three things he lists here, and these are kind of hard to understand. So you need to stick with me uh, here. The first thing we're to be looking out for in the church is people running the race, looking out for these things, seeing to these things is gracelessness. In verse 15, he says, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Now, it is true that there is extra grace available for the believers that is beyond saving grace. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, but there's also extra grace. 
And that grace is the kind of grace that we saw back in um, Hebrews 4 when you, uh, he, he says, you know, boldly approach the throne of grace. Why? So that you might, might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. There's extra measures of grace God gives us in desperate times. I read some pages of the book of martyrs before. Some of these people died in ways I can't even imagine, and yet they died in such a way that their testimony caused others to believe. I believe they had an extra measure of grace. So it is not this grace that's being referred to. Some do say that's the case, but this is why I say not, because he says, make sure lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. That word fall short is the exact same Greek word used in Romans 3.23, and you you all know that verse, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Of God. No one attains God's glory. We all fall short of that, meaning we don't have it. Okay? No one has God's glory. That's all mankind because all mankind are sinners. Now, who is it, looking at this passage here, who could fall short of God's grace? Well, that's all unrepentant sinners. All sinners fall short of his glory, all unrepentant sinners fall short of his grace. It's sinners without faith. You can say it that way because it's by grace you've been saved through faith. So we're to be looking for others in the church who might be falling short of the grace of God. What's he saying that? Well, these are the same group of people that he's been talking to throughout the whole of this, people who associate themselves with the church. Um, They've not tasted saving grace for themselves. They've been just in the church. There's things about it that have appealed to them. Maybe it's the fellowship. Maybe it's the music. maybe, Maybe there's just... Elements they, they understand on an on a intellectual level only, but that's as far as it has gotten. And so this is what this tells me, is that the primary focus of our evangelistic efforts, our counseling, our discipleship is inward. There are people in our midst, he's saying, maybe even our midst right now, who fall short of the grace of God. They've never experienced God's grace for themselves. They've heard all about it. They know about it. They've seen it in others' lives. But right now, they fall short of it. And we are exhorted, commanded actually, to see to it that no one in our midst falls short. How horrible to have been running this race of faith with other believers in a church fellowship for years and years and years. And then you get to the end and you're in heaven and you're like, where's so-and-so? Oh, horrible. They never had God's grace for themselves. They just sort of took up a seat in a chair. You know, they took up a pew. It's That's all they were doing. He says, you need to see to it. No, in other words, we all make it, right? See to it, no one falls short because this is a slippery slope. This is a progression we see here. Gracelessness then leads to the second thing we need to look for because maybe they get to this point and that's bitterness. Look at verse 15 again, okay? Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. Bitterness is this word pikria, and it is not what you think. The Greek word means extreme wickedness. It means a bitter root that's producing bitter fruit. You remember in Scripture this character named Simon the sorcerer? You come across him in Acts chapter 8. He's in Samaria. Philip goes into Samaria to evangelize and to share the gospel, and this man, Simon the sorcerer, becomes a believer. He's even baptized by Philip. And so many people are coming to faith in Christ that Peter and John over in Jerusalem come over to see what all the fuss is about. They're like, let's go check out what's happening in in Samaria. And when they get there, they find this new bunch of believers who are Samaritans, not Jews. And so they haven't received the Holy Spirit. So that's why he lays his hands upon them and says, so you guys, the next step is receiving the Holy Spirit. And they lay their hands and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. This guy, Simon, sees all that taking place. And he says, wow, all right, I, I, I want that power. Give, give me that power. And apparently he offers to buy it because right there, Peter says, your money perish with you because you actually thought that you could buy the power of God and use it for your own means. Now, on the one hand, you could just look at that, that bit and go, okay, he was just a bit confused. He got overzealous and he was wrong. But no, look what else Peter goes on to say to, about this Simon. In Acts 8, 21 to 23, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. Part nor portion of what matter? The giving of the Holy Spirit, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. You got nothing to do with this. Why? For your heart is not right in the sight of God. 
Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. It's the same Greek word. There's extreme wickedness in your heart. On the outside, it looked like he was a believer. He's all excited about that. But the minute he saw, oh, there's profit to be had here. Oh, there's great power. See, he was enthralled with all the outward, but nothing really inward happening. Paul uses the same word, bitterness, in Romans 3. In Romans 3, Paul's describing all of humanity. We're all listed here. And he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. And then a few verses later, he says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So this word and what they're talking about here is not someone who is simply angry with the church, upset with another brother and sister in Christ. I know, I know people have translated that. I, I've heard people teach it that way. It, it's, it's not there. This is not what he's concerned about. This is not what's happening here. He's already told people to pursue peace. Here, we have a bigger problem. Here are people who have fallen short of God's grace. They've failed to accept God's grace, and now they've turned bitter toward the spiritual things. And the meaning of this becomes even clearer when we look at Moses' use of the same um, idea. In Deuteronomy 29, 18, it says this, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. So these people with bitterness and wormwood are people who go after and serve other gods. Now, watch how he describes them in verse 19. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. This is someone who has not rooted himself, anchored himself in the truth, but he thinks he's still okay with God. I can reject that, but hey, there's peace in my heart. I can do what I want. That's a bunch of uh, a rubbish. That's bitter poison root and it produces bitter fruit. And that kind of person is, is dangerous to the church, is what he's saying. So we have to look out for this kind of root of bitterness, because he says, look, what, what does he say? Springing up, lest it springs up, it causes trouble, and by this, many become defiled. Who are the many? Well, it's you and I. It's people in the church who, who, who get a hold of that. He's speaking about sin. Sin in the church is dangerous, because as a permeating effect. It can spread in the church. Like, like leaven, Jesus talked about the doctrine of the Pharisees all the time. He talked about it as the leaven because it, it can permeate their minds. Paul referred to sin in general as leaven. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. So you can spread, it can lead others astray, and we need to see to it that no root of bitterness exists in the church. Now, there's a progression going on here. So the natural progression for one who has fallen short of the grace of God, whose root is bitter poison, is the third thing we're looking out for, and that's ungodliness. Look at verse 16. Lest there be in a fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, why using Esau here? Esau is described as a fornicator, which is a, a profane uh, godless person, that's what that word uh, means. But fornicator, pornos, from where we get pornography, it always refers to one who is sexually immoral. But it also is linked with just immorality in general. The immoral are those who are willingly, wantingly giving in to their fleshy desires with no, no, no concern for the consequences. That's what this is. Those in the church, they've heard all about God's grace, they've fallen short of it, they've developed bitterness to spiritual things, and it leads to a, a, apostasy. That's what it is. It's a full departure from the faith. And remember, both 2 Peter and Jude directly address those kinds of people, people who have left the faith. In 2 Peter 2.10, he says this, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. You see that? Despise authority. They're presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of, of dignitaries. You see there's that, that just that immoral, uh, lusty sort of, um, fornicating kind of attitude there. Second Peter 2.14, a few verses later, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices, are cursed children. Those are really harsh, harsh words. 
but he's bringing up those characteristics so that they can be identified because ungodliness is a, in, the, in the church is, 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 is a terrible thing. And this is it. This kind of person, the spiritual things, the eternal things are nowhere in view, and that's why he brings up the example of Esau, okay? Esau, he showed disdain for pure and holy things. He was a man driven by immediate needs. And I know we're running out of time, but I'll, I'll do this quickly. If you want to turn with me to Genesis 25, I just want to read the account of Esau, what it's referring uh, uh, to, because it is important. It's Genesis 25, beginning in verse uh, 29. Um, and this is referring to uh, well, what it says in our Hebrews passage. <clears throat> he sold, uh, or for one morsel of food, sold his birthright, okay? In Genesis 25, beginning in verse 29, here's the account, okay? Now, this is his brother Jacob. Now, Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, because he was a hunter, and it says, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with some of that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was also called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? And then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. All right, so Esau, stay there in Genesis. We'll look at the next piece in a moment. But Esau is a man described as a big, kind of hairy, red man. He's a, a man of the outdoors. He liked fun, food, and females, okay? Um, and he, he despised his birthright. Basically, he thought it worthless, of no value. I'm about to die. That's so far in the future. I'll die before I, you know, that ever comes to me. And so his actions here revealed his heart. He, he didn't care for the blessing of being firstborn and all that would come to him as a result. That's just too far out. That's too far in the future. I want my, my needs met now. I'm, I just take everything I have now. And now twice we're told he was weary, just like many uh, whom the author is addressing, weary, weary runners, ready to give up, ready to throw in the towel, not considering the joy that's set before them. What the author is trying to say is don't be like Esau. He had it all, and he just, he, he just threw it away. These Jews are suffering, and they're going through some real suffering, but it's looking better and easier just to go back. Just, just go back. And that's the world. John Calvin said this, those in whom the love of the world so holds sway and prevails that they forget heaven as men who are carried away by ambition, addicted to money and riches, given over to gluttony and entangled with other kinds of pleasures, and they give the spiritual kingdom of Christ either no place or the last place in their concerns. No concern for spiritual things, no concern for eternal things. And so he just tossed away his birthright. Later, it comes time for the blessing. Now, Jacob is a deceitful man, his brother, and so Jacob deceives him and also takes Esau's blessing. That account is given us in two chapters later in chapter 27, and I'll read this briefly. Chapter 27, 30 to 38. Now, it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, so Isaac blessed Jacob instead of Esau because Jacob deceived him, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? So he said, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came and I have blessed him and indeed he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried just like Judas with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit. He has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. And now look, he's taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master and all his brethren. And I've given to him his servants with grain and wine. I've sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me also, O oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Thanks for the illustration, Jude, to help with that. That's what it sounded like Esau did. Big hairy man sounded like a crying baby. We paid him for that. Get some residuals. Listen. Although that blessing was taken away by deceit, the birthright and the blessing are linked in the story. One 
goes with the other. He had no concern for the birthright. He willingly gave it away, and so he lost the other. After it was too late, after the blessing had gone, only then did he seek the blessing with tears. Now, here's the sad truth. Esau desired God's blessing, but he didn't desire God. That's the point. He regretted what he had done at a point where it was too late. The blessing was, was gone. The author's making a point that salvation is only available while it is still today because soon it will be tomorrow and it will be too late. Grab hold of it. Esau only wanted it when the opportunity had already passed him by. No, don't neglect the help that you're receiving from the runners around you. Grab a hold of the faith that you see them holding on to. There's a free gift of God's grace available to you. Those in the running of the race are providing you strength to keep up. They're running in a straight path for you to follow. They're seeking after living a pure and obedient life to the Lord. And they're seeing to your souls, leading you to God's grace and salvation. Hell will be filled with people with genuine repentant hearts, genuine repentant tears, but it will be too late. Look at those that are running with endurance, that race of faith. They're recipients of that amazing grace of God, and it's available to all. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for your amazing grace. We're about to sing about your amazing grace. Lord, I, I can stand here today and, and teach these things and say these things only because I've experienced your grace. And because of your grace, I am forgiven. Lord, what a glorious truth. And I thank you so much for it. And Lord, I pray that your people would be encouraged as we run this race, that they have wonderful duties to look out for one another. Lord, we, we need each other because running this race is hard. It is hard to endure. So Lord, help us to look to those that need to be strengthened up, who are just getting tired and weary. Help us to, to keep on our own paths, to, to keep away from sin, that, that others might follow us. Lord, it, it is difficult. We so need each other. I thank you, Lord, that your word speaks about hard things. I know there's been difficult things in here, Lord, but the hardest truth is all through scripture, and that is sinners will spend eternity separated from God, experiencing his judgment for eternity. But they don't have to because God's grace has been freely offered to everyone. It is a free gift. Would you work in people's hearts today that they might see that gift and take it? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and we're gonna sing a closing song about amazing grace.